Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you to all of you who have gotten in touch with me and shared your kind words and shared your gratitude for this podcast. It makes me feel good and it keeps me motivated to release more podcasts. So look, I took a little piece of advice from a listener to the Kogo Pod, a fellow teacher, in fact, who said, hey, what you're doing here is pretty cool. It's valuable to me. It's valuable to my students. How can I support you? And I said, just listen. And she said, no, you should start one of these buy me a coffee pages where if people want to donate a little something, they can. And I thought about it a bit, maybe thought about it for too long. And uh, I just started one. So if you're a regular listener to this podcast, or if you find this to be particularly valuable, if it's supporting what you're trying to do, whether you're a student or a teacher, feel free to throw in a couple shekels over at buymeacoffee.com. I link to it in the show notes. However, I should say, if you're one of my students, keep your money. I don't want your money. You all do enough to keep me motivated and inspired. And hopefully this short talk will inspire and motivate you to think about politics and governance a little bit differently. Maybe it'll give you just a different lens through which to view politics and governance. So maybe we should start here. Surely it's clear to all of us that our attitudes and our values affect how we act, right? Our attitudes and our values also affect how our political system functions and how our political leaders act, yeah? Now, all political systems are, to varying degrees, dependent on the political attitudes of the citizens, right? More democratic systems are more dependent on the political attitudes of their citizens, and more authoritarian systems are probably less dependent on the political attitudes of their citizens. And the attitudes and values of citizens sort of make up what we're loosely calling political culture, right? Political culture, loosely defined, is the attitudes, the values, the sentiments of citizens towards politics. Political culture is a really complex and dynamic phenomenon. It's really an interesting field of study, in part because it's a cyclical process, which is to say the attitudes and the values of the citizens affect how government functions, and then the functioning of the government or the dysfunctioning of the government affects, in turn, the attitudes and values of the citizens, which again, in turn, affects how the government functions, right? And this cyclical process is desperately interesting. And when you're watching political processes over time, over years and decades, you'll find tremendous interest in political culture. I mean, usually political culture evolves slowly, right? But it's constantly in motion. And for that reason, political culture is exceedingly difficult to study. And to help us pin that down today is Gabriel Almond. Gabriel Almond is a titan in the world of comparative politics. He taught at Yale and Princeton. He spent the last couple of decades of his career at Stanford. And his work on political culture is truly defining. The field has evolved since his most productive years. But Gabriel Allman's thinking about political culture is really the foundation 
of academic discourse on political culture, in most political science departments at least. That said, of course, there are other esteemed scholars who have different ways of looking at political culture, but I'm using Gabriel Almond in part because it's what informed me as a student. It's it's really been the basis of my thinking about political culture for most of my career as an instructor, and I think it's useful. And perhaps it's useful because it's very organized. Almond offers a very organized way of thinking about political culture because he says there are three levels of political culture, the system level, the process level, and the policy level. And what I want to do today in this talk is to walk you through the system, process, and policy level in turn. So let's start with the system level. The system level of analyzing political culture is sort of analyzing the attitudes that citizens have towards the organization of their political system, right? And this is very much wrapped up in legitimacy, right? Political legitimacy is the term that comes up in this class as much as any other term, right? And of course, political legitimacy is defined by the citizen's belief that their government has the right to rule and that for that reason, laws should be obeyed. Right, that's legitimacy. And all governments seek to create an irrefutable sense of legitimacy among their citizens, among their populace. And there are various sources of legitimacy, right? Ideology can be a source of legitimacy. If a government claims to be communist or socialist or fascist or democratic, like that sort of ideology can be a source of legitimacy. Divine right can be a source of legitimacy, right? If the people believe that a higher power has bestowed upon the leader the right to rule, that engenders a source of legitimacy. Tradition can engender a source of legitimacy, as we'll see, that's one of the reasons that the British crown is important to the legitimacy of the British government. It's that tradition, that enduring tradition in and of itself that fosters legitimacy. And perhaps more appealing to you, my dear listener, is majority rule as a source of legitimacy, which is to say more democratic sources of legitimacy. And legitimacy is a key, perhaps the key, to effective governance. It's the key to minimizing the threat of internal conflict. Now, legitimacy can be undermined by various threats. This could be boundary disputes like we saw in South Ossetia. This could be disputes in leader recruitment. Right? How did this person rise to the top? What sort of tomfoolery or otherwise crooked politics made this person the leader? Suspect elections could undermine legitimacy. The Calderon government in Mexico from 2006 to 2012 really had to operate under the shadow of an election that a lot of Mexicans deemed to be illegitimate. Calderon won by 0.58%. And there is a lot of reason to believe that that election was fraudulent fraudulent elections or the perception of fraudulent elections can undermine legitimacy. 
legitimacy could be undermined when leaders defy proper procedure, when leaders put themselves above the law, and everybody knows it. Perhaps ultimately, legitimacy can be undermined when the people's needs just aren't being met, when the government's not delivering the goods, right? The first level of political culture is the system level, and that's, again, the attitudes of the citizens towards how the system works and the question about the degree to which they deem that system to be legitimate in its functioning, to be legitimate in its processes of elite recruitment, to be legitimate in the ways in which it develops and implements policy. You know, and if I'm sounding too, like, factual in my thinking about it, perhaps it's best raised as a question, right? Like, how do the citizens of Nigeria or the citizens of China actually feel and think about how politics gets done in their country? And how have those feelings and thoughts evolved over time, the last 5, 10, 25 years? And as you begin to grapple with that question, then you can begin to grapple with the question of what has the government done to foster legitimacy? What has the government done to undermine legitimacy? How can a government foster the support of its people without using the types of coercive techniques that most of us find anathema to our moral and ethical codes? So I think these are really interesting questions. And I think it gets yet more interesting when we get into this second level of political culture, the process level. And the process level explores how citizens are part of the political process. And like I told you, Gabriel Allman's genius was in part wrapped up in like classification and organization of ideas. And here's evidence of that. Almond offers three ways in which citizens are part of the political process. First, we have participants, then subjects, and then parochials. We'll talk about each in turn, and maybe it's useful to see all citizens on a continuum from like participants to subjects, or on a continuum from participants to parochials. But first, let's explain what those are. I think you know what participants are, right? Political participants are people who are informed and they make performance-based decisions about how the government works. They read the paper, they watch the news, they engage in political discourse. Usually there is a free space for them to do so, which is to say that there's a certain degree of democracy that allows for free press so that they can watch closely what the government is doing so that they can sign petitions, and go to protests, and vote often. These are participants. On the other side of that, we have subjects. People who are political subjects are subjected to an authoritarian government. They have to be obedient, often passively so. They're subject to the rule of a crown. They're subject to the rule of their fearless leader. Their opinions, their voices don't so much matter, and they know it. They might not be thrilled with it. They might be downright angry about it. But they know that they are subjects. And the people in the big pretty building 
they're the leaders, and neither betwixt the two shall meet. So we have participants, and we have subjects, and we have parochials. Parochials are politically ignorant and or politically disinterested people. They might be illiterate, they might be rural, they don't think much about politics, politics doesn't affect them much, until somewhat recently, most Tibetans were parochials. What happened in Beijing, or even what happened in the governing structures of their special autonomous region, didn't affect them so much. Rather problematically, the fine people of Tibet are having an increasingly difficult time being parochials. We'll talk more about that later. And I want to impress upon you that it's not like particularly useful to just label a political culture as such. To be like, oh, the Chinese are subjects, or the Nigerians are participants. There's kind of a law of diminishing return on labeling in this regard. I think the real question and the real interesting question is like, to what degree and in what ways do we have acceptable political participation in Russia or Nigeria or Mexico? And to what degree are there parochials in Russia? And what's the impact of having substantial pockets in the eastern regions of Russia who feel immune to and aloof towards what's happening in Moscow? You know, and it's important to recognize that even in the most totalitarian states, there are participants who participate at great risk to their lives. And even more so, there are citizens who participate because they're coerced to do so. And even in more democratic states, there are pockets of parochialism. So again, the labeling game can be dangerous, in large part because it undermines our desire to be nuanced in our thinking about political culture. All right. So we talked about the system level, which is, again, how citizens think and feel about the organization of their system. We talk about the process level, which is how citizens are part or aren't part of a political process. And the third level is the policy level, which is the attitudes and expectations of citizens towards policy and how it's implemented, right? How do the citizens feel about public policy and public policy implementation? It matters. Right? Because a political culture thrives when the government meets the policy expectations of its citizens. And a political culture suffers when it can't or doesn't meet the policy expectations of its citizens. So how do the people feel towards these policies? And in a Western context, a lot of this is wrapped up in sort of the big government versus small government debate. But that's very limited to the Western context. And I'm not so interested in the big government versus small government debate so much as I'm interested in the discussion about policy effectiveness. Like, how do the people of a country feel about the wisdom in policymaking? How do the people of a country feel about the effectiveness and the efficiency of the implementation of that policy? Perhaps the people believe that there was a wise policy that was created, but it was so poorly implemented that the wisdom of the policy was for naught. You know, maybe there was a wisdom to 
prohibition in America in the 1920s. Alcohol abuse was rampant. It was truly a public health epidemic. So maybe there was wisdom in prohibition. But the implementation of the Volstead Act was treacherous. Maybe there are health laws and health mandates that are wise in their creation, but foolish in their implementation. And the question is, how do citizens feel about that? What are their attitudes and beliefs about policy construction and policy implementation? Do they believe that the government has the sovereign authority to rule in certain matters? And these questions about political legitimacy, these questions about internal sovereignty, are oftentimes wrapped up in what some political scientists call cultural congruence. Right, this idea that political systems and political cultures are mutually reinforcing, at least in more stable systems. Right, the political culture supports the system, and the system supports political cultures. The system supports civil society, dialogue, and investment in the system. And the extent to which political systems and political cultures reinforce each other is the extent to which we have congruence. And in order for the citizens to trust the political process, they really have to trust each other first. And oftentimes it's not the case, right? Oftentimes in political cultures, we have cumulative and cross-cutting cleavages that can really undermine the health of the political culture and ultimately thus undermine the health of the political system. And given the way many nation-states are created, it's often difficult for citizens of different regions, different ethno-religious backgrounds, to really trust each other. And it's exceedingly difficult to govern when the people don't trust each other, in part because when the people don't trust each other, at least a certain proportion of the population has a tendency to not trust the government as well. So this notion of cultural congruence is really potent. And congruence can also be interesting when we look at how democratic political structures will only thrive in political cultures that foster democratic responsibilities. You know, another way of saying that, of course, is you can't have democracy without Democrats. Right? The people have to believe in each other. They have to believe in their own power as citizens to participate in a fruitful way in democratic governance. You know, you can have the best democratic political structures. You could have constitutions that are written in democratic ways. You could even have politicians who seek to promote more democracy. But if the people don't participate in useful ways towards democratic governance, if the political culture is not democratic in its spirit, then it's really hard to govern democratically. Right? We've seen this in Central and Eastern Europe. We've seen it in Brazil. It's sort of this chicken or egg question about democracy. Right? What needs to come first in order to create a robust liberal democracy? Is it the people and their belief in each other and the belief in the system? Or is it the Constitution and democratic political structures? Right? It's terribly problematic. Again, you can have very democratic political structures, but people who don't believe in democracy or people who may believe in democracy, but they don't act on those beliefs in a fruitful way. 
And to the contrary, you can have political cultures that tend to believe in democracy, and the citizens do tend to trust each other, by and large, but the governing structures don't support that, or particular powerful people who run those governing structures don't believe in democracy. And again, the extent to which we have agreement in attitudes and actions between the political systems and the political cultures is the degree to which we have cultural congruence. And there are no perfectly congruent systems, and there are no totally incongruent systems that I'm aware of. But it's terribly challenging to create cultural congruence. And it's terribly challenging to create what we call consensual political culture. Right? Consensual political culture is when citizens tend to agree on the appropriate means for making decisions and how to implement or enforce those decisions. So like to the extent to which a political culture is consensual, the people agree on the decision-making processes and the implementation of those policies. We have high degrees of consensus in Scandinavian countries. We have pretty high degrees of consensus in Western Europe, broadly speaking. And again, we don't want to be too absolute in terminology. There's no perfect consensus. It's a matter of the degree to which a political culture is consensus-oriented or the degree to which it's conflict-oriented. Right? We have these conflictual political cultures where citizens are sharply divided on the regime, policy-making processes, and or policy enforcement. Now, just to briefly illustrate conflictual versus consensual political systems in a Western context, I'm recording this podcast in beautiful Berlin, Germany. About 10% of the listeners to this podcast are in Germany. About 25% are listening from the United Kingdom. And just about 55% are listening from the United States. So let's take those three countries. Now, in Germany, at the time of this recording, we're just a couple of weeks away from a very interesting and somewhat heated, by German standards, general election. And one likely outcome of this election will be that the future looks like the present, in that we have the CDU, or the Christian Democratic Union, the Conservative Party, form an alliance with the Social Democratic Party. Right now, if you're one of the 50% of listeners in the United States, and you hear that, it seems impossible. It seemed impossible to me when I lived in the United States so many years ago that the Social Democrats could form a happy, healthy, functional, consensual alliance with a Christian Democratic Party. Right? Germany has a rather remarkable degree of consensus-driven political discourse. The culture is unusually consensual. It's quite pleasant, I must say. You know, 75% of people or so come out to vote, and the political discourse is largely civil and consensual. In the beautiful United Kingdom, about 65% of people who come out in general elections on average over the last 20 years. And you can see a more conflictual political culture if you watch the House of Commons, right? You're pitting people on opposite sides of the room. There's vitriol. 
but it's all protected by this robust safety net of soft guardrails, tradition, service to country, etc. So if Germany is a continental European model for consensus, and the United Kingdom is in its own way a model for consensus, though less so, you have more conflict there, let's take a look at our friends across the Atlantic. Now, I, being a middle-aged dude, grew up in an environment of, at least comparatively speaking, consensus-oriented politics, right? And we can watch the path of American consensual political culture steer towards conflict. And if you take a history class with me, you know, we walk that path. That path probably begins in Vietnam. It takes some sharp turns in the 1980s. And generally speaking, it continues on that course to the present to the point where American political culture today is conflictual in ways that seem foreign to me. And I've only been out of the United States for 16 years. So from a distance, I have watched, rather sadly, I should say, whatever consensus was left in American politics deteriorate. Of course, history is not destiny. One can imagine a world where American political discourse heals. Sometimes it takes tragedy to bring political discourse towards consensus-oriented, civilized political engagement out of conflictual political cultures. Of course, sometimes tragedies cultivate deeper conflict. Sometimes it requires a common enemy. But let's hope that neither tragedy nor a common enemy are required to bring the American people back towards consensus-oriented politics. Let's hope that neither war nor tragedy is required to bring the British people back towards a more consensual political discourse. And what's particularly interesting is watching countries go from a more conflictual political culture towards a more consensual political culture. It's fascinating to watch consensuses develop. And it's also interesting, though less inspiring, of course, to watch consensual political cultures devolve into conflictual political cultures. And we're seeing that happen more and more among some leading countries in the Western world. And it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch consensus devolve. It's hard to watch political conflict emerge when there was previously a consensus. It can be quite disheartening to bear witness to, quite frankly. But again, in the study of political culture, what we look for often is change over time. We're looking for processes. We're examining processes that evolve slowly. We embrace the problem that political cultures are constantly in motion. And while that makes political cultures challenging to understand in a thorough and nuanced way, that's what makes political culture endlessly interesting to watch carefully. And so I hope as you go through your studies of Britain, Russia, and China, Iran, Nigeria, and Mexico this year, and hopefully over the course of the next many years, you keep a keen eye on the evolution of the political cultures in those countries. 
I assure you that your pursuit of those inquiries will be endlessly edifying. And I hope you found this talk edifying, and I hope you'll join us for the next one. But for now, I should tell you, because I'm just realizing that I failed to do so at the head of this episode, that the lecture notes for this talk are linked to in the show notes. So if you've found yourself frustrated and furiously scribbling to take all this down, fear not. The lecture notes are in the show notes. And of course, just a friendly reminder that you're cordially invited to pop over to the Buy Me A Coffee website just to help to keep the Kogo pod going strong. But most importantly, I wish you health. I wish you wellness. Please take care of yourself. Take care of your people. And we'll talk at you on the next episode.